0: Please join me as we read the prayer for illumination together. All together, Spirit of the living God, free our minds from error. Teach our hearts the living words of Jesus and inspire our lips to share the good news. In the name of the blessed Holy Trinity, amen. Our reading this morning is from John 15, verses 1 through 11. This is what the Holy Scripture says. and that your joy may be full. May God bless the reading of his word. And please read with me all together. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever.
1: Thanks, John. Good morning, my name's Jason. I'm pastor here at King's Church. We've been doing our series, Rooted in Jesus, going through the Gospel of John, if you are to read through this gospel, you see Jesus time and time again uh, saying what is known as the I am sayings. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I am the way the truth, and the life. And this morning, we're looking at the last of the I Am sayings where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, in this passage, Jesus is using this imagery of the vine to show us four people. Uh, First, he speaks of himself in verses 1 to 2. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So here, Jesus first is using this imagery of the vine to speak of himself. He says, I am the true vine. He speaks of God the Father here as the vine dresser. Now, a vine dresser would be one who would prune, train, and cultivate a vine. He also speaks of disciples that do not bear fruit and disciples or branches that do bear fruit. Now, let's look at this imagery of Jesus himself as the true vine. What is he getting at here? What's interesting is that he chooses to describe himself not as the vine, but the true vine. And what that shows us is that Jesus is comparing himself to a different vine, one that isn't true. Now, in his commentary... On John, Gary Burge, the scholar, describes in the temple a gigantic grapevine made of pure gold that was kept in the temple. And in fact, Jesus may have had this in mind because we're told in chapter 14 that he and his disciples left the upper room where he had been teaching them. And they began walking to the Kidron Valley perhaps walking by the temple. Jesus refers to this vine, and they may have had in mind this golden vine that was in the temple. This vine actually grew over time because wealthy Israelites would donate either golden tendrils, leaves, or grapes to increase its size. And the ancient historian Josephus actually describes that some of the golden vine grape clusters were over five feet tall. So we're talking about a massive vine that was kept within the religious temple of the Israelites. And the reason why this vine was in the temple is because the imagery of a vine is a very Old Testament concept. For example, if we were to go to Psalm 80, notice what it tells us here in verses 8 and 9. You, speaking of God, brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Here the psalmist is talking about the Exodus. Moses bringing God's people out of Egypt entering into the promised land, and Israel is described as a vine that is planted by God. Now, why did God plant this vine? Well, we go back to the Abrahamic promise. When God originally gave Abraham the land, He told Abraham that you and your descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. So the Abrahamic promise shows us God's intention for this vineyard was to produce fruit, to be a blessing to all the nations. From the very beginning, that was God's purpose. But something happens once Israel establishes itself in the land, once this vineyard begins to grow, notice what happens throughout the prophets. For example, Jeremiah chapter 2 Jeremiah says this, this is God speaking, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy a pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? A wild vine. Here God is pronouncing judgment on his people saying, I planted you to produce good fruit and here you've turned wild and gone your own way. We can look in Isaiah 2. Five, chapter 5, again we see this imagery where we're told, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. This is God looking for justice among his people, the good fruit that he wanted, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, the good fruit God was looking for from his people But behold, an outcry, that outcry being from the poor, from those who who receive injustice, from those who are persecuted. God planted Israel to be his people, to produce good fruit, to produce justice and righteousness. His holiness in that vineyard turned wild and produced the exact opposite. And so here Jesus is making this outrageous claim that he is the true Israel. That he is the Israel that God intended. That he is the true vine that his people were intended to be, that Israel could not be. And Jesus is the true vine that came and lived the life of love lived the life of justice, lived the life of righteousness. Jesus loved the poor, the persecuted, those who were weak and broken and lost. Jesus, the true vine, came to fulfill the promise God gave to Abraham and be the blessing to all the nations. This is good news. This is the gospel. That Jesus is the vine That you and I can't be. Now it's interesting isn't it. That Jesus says that God the vine dresser. Expects his vine to produce fruit. Now that is startling at times for us as Christians. Especially those who believe in the gospel. Because sometimes we hear the gospel. And we believe God doesn't expect anything from us. We hear a gospel of unconditional grace and love. And we interpret that to mean God doesn't expect us to produce fruit. We preach this gospel and we twist it. R.C. Sproul described this kind of mentality when he taught classes and gave exams to college students at a Christian school. He said that he sometimes received the following response to an essay question. Dear professor, I didn't prepare adequately for this examination. I'm so sorry. I won't let it happen again. Please be merciful to me because I really do love Jesus. (laughs) These students made the argument in their minds that their professor should not require responsible behavior from them because they believed in Jesus. Now, when R.C. would see this, he would jot a little note on the exam page and say, I'm delighted to hear the state of your soul, and I hope you've grasped the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but when grading my students, I practice justification by works alone. (laughs) Now, that's not intended to say that God (laughs) functions with us on an expectation of justification by works. It's intended to bring to mind this tendency that we have, though, to believe that the fact that we're saved by grace alone in Christ alone, that that should not produce fruit in us, or that God does not have an expectation of it producing fruit in us. It does. He does. He's the vine dresser. The vine dresser expects his vine, his branches, to produce fruit. R.C. says it this way, The idea of being productive is not the invention of capitalism, it is the mandate of Christ. So we must understand this concept in order to fully understand the gospel. God's expectation of fruit is good news for us because... Jesus is the true vine. Let me see if I can explain that. You see, we tend to focus on the cross of Christ, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, which is good news. And we have full forgiveness because of Jesus dying for us. But the reality is that's only one aspect of the gospel. The other aspect of the gospel is the fact that Jesus' life, His righteousness, His justice, His love, the life that He lived is also ours in Christ by faith. You see, it's the difference between relying on a self-generated righteousness and relying on a received righteousness. This is what Jesus is trying to get across, I think, in this passage. You see, there are two types of branches here. There's the branch not bearing fruit, and there's the branch bearing fruit. Now, This is not a warning to people outside the church. This is what we need to realize. Jesus is not speaking to those outside the church. He's speaking to disciples. And what he's saying is there are two types of disciples. There are disciples that bear fruit and disciples that do not bear fruit. And so it's a warning to those of us who claim to follow Christ but are not producing fruit. Jesus is telling us you can be a disciple and be under God's judgment. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That that phrase, take away, comes from a Greek word that means to cut off. And Jesus kind of illustrates this later on in verse 6, where he says, if you don't abide in me, you're thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That is imagery of judgment. Judgment. And I believe that is a disciple who is relying on self generated righteousness, a disciple who is depending on themselves rather than abiding in Jesus. This is the phrase that Jesus uses here abiding in me. To abide basically means to remain, to stay put. To linger, to dwell, to set up camp. The way Steve Brown, a pastor and author, describes it, he says, Abiding in in Christ is simply staying near a friend who loves you. Now, what I want to challenge you with this morning is to begin to think about your relationship with Christ, not just in your outward behavior and not just in what you know and think the doctrine you believe in, but to think of it in terms of an internal spiritual relationship, a life-giving relationship that you have with Christ. And one way, I think, in the imagery that Jesus is using here of a branch and a vine is to think in terms of that internal reality. Now, I know this isn't a vine or a branch, but I'm going to show you a cross-section of a celery stick. And the reason I'm using this is because you can see those little dots, right? Now, some, some of you, maybe you remember biology, can tell me the, the language here. But I just want you to think th- of those in terms of almost like blood vessels, where the nutrients are transported throughout the plant, throughout the vegetable. And that's exactly the imagery I think Jesus wants us to see and imagine with the branch and the vine, that there there are branches connected to the vine that do not have this life-giving connection. Their relationship with Christ might look good on the outside, but there's nothing life-giving on the inside, and those branches don't produce fruit. There are other branches that have that vitality in them, within them, that produces fruit. Your relationship with Jesus is not just your outward behavior. Gary Burge describes it this way, that discipleship is not just a matter of acknowledging who Jesus is. It is having Jesus spiritually connected to your inner life. Do you have that? Is that a reality? I think we have to read this passage and ask that question because producing the fruit that glorifies God, Jesus mentions that, that our good works, our fruit is intended to glorify God. We must have that life-giving relationship with Jesus in order to do that. In other words, a moral person living independently of Christ cannot produce the good fruit that Jesus is talking about here because it doesn't glorify God. In other words, the most devout Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist cannot please God because they're living independent of Christ. In fact, there are some very good, moral, faithful Christians, professed Christians who cannot please God because they're living independently of Christ. They're relying on their outward works, their outward behavior, their self-generated righteousness. Let me tell you, this is a reality. I've shared this before in my marriage. I fall into this. I am an acts of service kind of guy. And so often, I can rely on acts of service, this self-generated righteousness, to make myself feel really good. To view myself as a very loving husband. Washing dishes. That's my go-to. I wash dishes. And as I'm washing them, I sometimes even marinate in this idea. Man, I am such a good husband. I am washing these dishes. My wife is so lucky to be married to me. I know all these other husbands, they don't do this. And it just feeds on itself. And all the while I'm doing that, I can sometimes have maybe even a resentment towards my wife or, you know, think, well, you know, she's not doing this or she's not doing that. And all the while that self-generated righteousness, I'm leaning on that. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling us against. He's saying, "That's not the point. He says in verse four, "Abide in me, in I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me." In other words, you and I have to take a step back and say, "Jesus, I'm going to trust in your righteousness. I'm going to receive your righteousness. I'm going to rest there." and not in my self-generated righteousness. This is the key. That is what it means to abide. To trust in the fruit Jesus produces, not in your own fruit. To trust in Jesus' righteousness, not in your own self-generated righteousness. That is why it is good news that Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. Because Jesus can produce the fruit that you and I can. Russell Moore puts it this way, that for too long we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus doesn't want to be in your life. Your life's a wreck. (laughs) Jesus calls you into his life. And that's what it means to abide. We get lost in his life. This is why Abiding is such an important concept and it's difficult for us to get a handle on uh, because we never outgrow it. We never outgrow it. You know, as we mature, we continue to see more and more our dependence on Christ. And so often we can be so oriented towards being good people and being moral people and being a good Christian and that's not what Jesus calls us to And so if maybe for the first time you're hearing this and realizing you've spent your whole life relying on your own moral goodness, today is a day for you to turn away from that, to repent and say, Jesus, I want to find my life in you. Because that is where the joy that he's offering us is found. To stop being anxious about whether or not you're doing enough, you're producing enough to stop being arrogant in the fact that you feel like you are doing enough. Either way, it's an extreme, and Jesus is calling you to the middle to say, find life in me, abide in me, trust in me. I am the true vine. That's what Jesus is calling us to this morning. But I know for me, abiding can be so difficult. It's so hard. And part of it is our wandering hearts, our anxious hearts. You know, abiding can sound very passive. It can sound as if we don't have to do anything. Kind of like sitting in a Lazy Boy. You know, sometimes we think this is what abiding is. You know, you just kind of lay back, let go, and let Jesus do it. And that's not what abiding is. I would argue that abiding is an active passivity. It's an active passivity. And I was trying to think of an illustration uh, to maybe demonstrate this. And the thing that came to mind, kept coming to mind, are dogs. Have you ever seen a dog with a master, a dog that is anxious to to run? And, you know, they're kind of holding the leash. You know, I think I have a picture here. That dog, you can see that dog wants to get away. That dog wants to go, wants to run. And I think that's a good illustration of our hearts. We don't want to remain in Jesus. We don't want to stay put. We don't want to abide in him. Our hearts want to be independent. We want to run from him. We want to flee. We want to do our own thing. And yet, Jesus is calling us to that place of a sitting. And it makes me think of that dog that is sitting. And they may be tense and they may want to go, but they're just keeping their eyes on their master. Abiding. This is an image of abiding in Jesus, where you're just so fixated on Him. Even though you want to run, you're staying put. That's a lot of work. (laughs) That's a lot of work to keep yourself fixed on Christ. And that's where we have to stay. Now, this idea of abiding really confronts my desire for independence, and maybe you can relate. The idea of pruning, that confronts my desire for comfort. This is the part of what Jesus is saying that I really don't want to hear, but yet I need to, and so do you. Jesus says this, Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now pruning, what happens with pruning is, the vine dresser comes along, and he he prunes and, and snips and cuts the vine, the branches, and he does that in order that the vine and the branches would produce more fruit. Pruning usually happens in the wintertime. When you cut off these branches, the plant is able to, to maximize the amount of light that it gets. It also maximizes the nutrients to the, to the healthy branches it keeps the leaves from bunching so that you know which could spread disease and cause problems for the vine and so the vine dresser does this pruning in order to maximize the amount of fruit that's produced now think about it for a moment i often in my understanding of god if i were doing this i i want god to say produce fruit and i'll leave you alone Lord, let me produce fruit and then just leave me alone. But what Jesus is saying is that if I'm producing fruit, I actually should expect more hardship. Pruning is a difficult process. Pruning involves cutting. Pruning involves difficulty, painful circumstances. And what's instinctual for us is if we think we're going through a difficult time, we might interpret that as God either punishing us or God abandoning us. And what Jesus is telling us in this passage is actually, it could be that God is pruning you so that you'll produce even more fruit. That's a very challenging perspective. Especially for me, I I gravitate towards comfort. I don't want to be pushed. I don't want to experience hard things. And yet Jesus is saying that if I'm actually producing fruit, God might put me through a difficult situation in order to produce even more fruit in me. Now that might be for you. You might be experiencing some very difficult health struggles. Your health... Maybe you've experienced it for a long time, and you keep thinking, what is God doing? Is He punishing me? Is He abandoning me? Maybe He's pruning. It could be your career. Perhaps, you know, you've given so much to your career, you've invested so much in your career, and things aren't going the way that you wanted. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe it's a, you're not satisfied in your work. Maybe things at your work, you didn't get the promotion you wanted, or the things that you're doing are very difficult. You might be thinking, God, are, are you there? Are you punishing me? Have you abandoned me? And God's pruning you. Because maybe your career has been too important to you. Or perhaps it's a relationship. Maybe you don't have the relationship you've always wanted. Maybe your relationship, you're enduring a, a great struggle right now, and you're thinking, God, are you punishing me? God, are you? have you abandoned me? Maybe the reality is God is pruning you. Because that relationship has simply been a way for you to avoid Christ. And he's drawing you to himself. Maybe in this time of pruning, he wants you to turn to him. I know for me, if I can get very personal this morning, you know, we've been at the Petroleum Club for several years now, and, and if you remember, if you've been with us over that period of time, our church instantly almost, it felt like grew by 70 to 80 people. It was like we went you know, from a church of 180 to almost 240, 250. And since then, we've kind of sh- pruned. <laughs> we've kind of shrunk. And I'm wondering... God, are you punishing me? Are you abandoning me? Why is the church getting smaller? In this passage, as I read it, I I consider, well, God, are you pruning us? Do I need to see that maybe I've invested too much in the size of our church and not focused on the right things? Loving Christ, shepherding all of you, pointing you to Jesus, coming back to those basics. So the question might be, how do we know when God is pruning us? And I think really it boils down to this. We we can see God pruning us when we become more reliant on the vine for our life and our strength. We can sense God pruning us when when it points us to Christ and we find ourselves relying on Him. And I'll end with this quote by Gary Burge. He says, the great irony is that sometimes it's the fruitful branches that feel the most frail. In the winter of drastic pruning, we may not feel that we are fruitful at all. But if we draw more deeply from the life-giving vine in the times of great need, we can be assured that the master gardener is pruning us. We can be assured that the vine will produce a greater harvest of fruit. And that is our hope this morning.